Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... And Renee. Renee. How are you this morning? <laughs> I'm very well, Lyle. It's been a while you. since you've been on here. Yes, it's been a hot minute. <laughs> like a month? Yeah, yeah. And I was with Minnie. Minnie on, on this. Yeah, it was, it was the all-girl show. <laughs> it was. It was a lot of fun. And you guys were having altogether too much fun. That is against the rules. You're not supposed to be doing that kind of radio when I'm not here. Uh, at least I get to have you on now and rebuke yeah. you for that. Yes, yes. I'm very sorry. <laughs> not. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you back. What are you thankful for this morning? I am very thankful for air conditioning. Can I please explain? Go ahead. I don't think you need to. I think most people kind of get the concept, but go ahead. Listen to my pain. I've moved back into dorms and there is no air conditioning in each room or fans. And so the first night I forgot to bring my fan or, you know, mini portable air conditioning. And I was just lying on my bed sweating like this is not fun. See, this is this is the time when you move into the bathroom and lie on the cool tile oh. floors. You see, just sleep in the sleep in the uh, in the bathroom there. That's it's actually disturbing a really people, good idea. You know, those, those cold tiles. Yeah. <laughs> Next time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I got a fan. Except you have to have the light on and people walking in and out all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of looking at you. Really. <laughs> <laughs> what are you grateful for? Oh, I had the best experience yesterday. So I, um, I, I, I went to buy something off, you know, Facebook as you do. Yes, Facebook yep. Marketplace called mm-hmm. people up, made contact, made a time to to meet them, went and met them, all the rest. I get there and like, oh, you know our grandson. I'm looking at him like these people look vaguely familiar to me. And of course, I worked with their grandson, uh, Braden Enterman, for oh. a bunch of years, and they just moved to the local area, and I had no idea they'd moved to the area. <laughs> And uh, so that was really, really special. Really enjoyed that little... uh... You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Positively different news. Let's have it. Yes. Well, I I really like this one. The Murray-Darling Basin community are to receive $34 million cash injection in aid water recovery. So an additional $34 million will be... um, put into this Basin Economic Development Program. The Federal Minister for Water, I didn't know we had one of those, but it makes sense. I guess you're in Australia, you know, we need a minister for water. We do lack water. Um, he said that the grants would provide opportunities to develop projects in communities impacted by water recovery under the Basin Plan. Nice. So he says that this is about driving those regional economies, strengthening those regional economies and uh, proving uh, more local jobs into the future and most importantly to add some more diversification for those regional centres. He says that the third round of grants will will see eligible groups bid for between $50,000 to $1 million to fund projects. So the minister will be touring these towns until the end of this week. Um, and the environmental, environment minister and local member Susan Lay welk, Susan Lay welcomed the tour by her colleague and said that she would be joining him, uh, for the first two days. So there's a few of them going around. Um, they said that this issue has plagued, uh, plagued communities for both sides of the Murray River for so long. So it's really good that they're able to provide, um, some solutions and provide funding for 
um, any projects that these people have in the community. So they sort of have the power to know, okay, this is what we need. This is what we want. This is where money would best go, uh, go to use. And so, um, that's essentially what is happening. Um, they are saying that they all, they say essentially all we need is water to make sure our communities are sustainable in the future. These are the rural community inland from Australia for those listening. Um, they saying we want to find a workable solution to maintain as much of that precious resources as possible for irrigated agriculture and um, from from individual farmers through to environmentalists right to people in community centers including councils and anyone looking for economic development this these projects this grant is available for all you just have to apply um, and projects such as cycling walking tracks business mentoring ecotourism trails and agritourism projects are awarded for funding there you go I, you know what I think we should do about water what do you think I'm a little bit controversial on this one I think we should build more dams Oh, okay. Because if we have more dams, then during drought, we have water that is available either for farmers who are in trouble or for rivers that are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Because both of those things end up in trouble during drought, and we would have that water in storage and just build dams and hold it in storage for such time as we need it. Yeah. Uh, I think the second thing that would be a great idea would be to uh, pump the monsoon, the northern monsoon, down to the south where, you know, put some put some big pipelines through there, pump it down to the south. Uh, when it gets to the south, if you pump it into those river systems, it literally takes, you know, uh, what, two, three, four months for it to work its way through those river systems out mm. to the sea, and by which time the monsoon will be, you know, heading back to the north again. And you've got, you know, you've got places in the north where they get metres of water during the monsoon that just goes straight out into the ocean and it's wasted. I see. So pump it down this direction where we need it, pump it into the outback where we need it. Mm. And drought proof the continent. I see. That's my plan anyway. I have no idea from an engineer engineering perspective whether any of that would work or not. I have uh the, I think the idea of pumping water from the north has been around for about fifty years and nobody's ever done it, so there's probably some fairly strong pros and against it. But but I think we should it try. Sounds, it. It, sounds it sounds like good. a good idea. It sounds good. On pa- yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I like it when I sound good. <laughs> oh, well, that's good for him. Anyway, so um, going on to some more news. Well, it looks like all of my news are more rural stories, which is good. a good thing. Um, <clears throat> so Adelaide Love, she is known as the Tears and Smears Doctor in rural Queensland. Um, she's been in that Queensland. She's served for more than 25 years. And this new story basically really just goes over um, just the kind of nurses and doctors and medical staff that they have in these rural areas and how it's hard to get people. Um, they're saying mostly newer newer staff. It's harder to get people into the rural communities. Um Uh, With rural and regional towns struggling to attract doctors, the Australian Medical Association, the AMA, uh, said that her her dedication, Adele Adele Love, to rural medicine has shared by, um, her dedication is shared by a minority. The GP puts her endearing nickname, which is Tears and Smears Doctor, down to her passion for her extensive knowledge of women's health and mental health. So Dr. Love, um, she arrived in Theodore at a trainee, as a trainee at 1994. And get this, she met her husband at a social ballroom dancing and there was no looking back. That was really sweet, I think. She says that varieties of spice 
of life and in rural medicine that's what we get which is something i didn't expect i i would have thought like in rural medicine you'd kind of get the same thing it's a small town you get the same of you know kind of same routine i guess you're getting kind of the same kind of um patients but not the case that's clearly i see my preconceptions were incorrect so well maybe it works like this maybe when you're in a rural area and you're the one doctor or you're the one surgeon that is there mm. you get to do all the different uh doctoring and surgery that True. needs done because yeah. there are no specialists available so you don't send it off to the foot specialist the ear specialist the yeah nose you specialist, are the specialist the knee specialist <laughs> you're the specialist for all yeah. of them so maybe yeah. that's where the extra variety comes in that, well that does yeah that makes sense. I can Jack see that. Jack of all trades. And, and that would, I guess that would really just, really just, I guess, really grow your skills as a doctor. Um, so yeah. So Dr. Love, I like her name. It's really nice. Yes. Having grown up on a cattle property near Mundebera, landing a job in the bush fulfilled her dreams. So she wanted to enjoy the rural life, which she's grown up and loved, but also provide people with the, with a continuity of care, holistic care within the context of family and community in general, which I Absolutely love. I love that she can focus also as, as a doctor in this, in these small communities. She has more freedom to actually focus on the community health and not just like, you know, she just gets one patient and just sort of, I don't know, just, I, I just like the holistic care that she's giving. So, um, she's just making a big difference. And I guess that's just a really encar- an encouragement to, you know, medical staff out there. Check out the rural. <laughs> Absolutely, most certainly is. We're going to listen to uh, some Kemi Ogendi with Here to Stay, and I think there's a lot of people out there in the rural areas that are there to stay. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Um, we're going to talk about just a really serious story this morning that um, I find most disturbing. And so Joe Biden in the United States has just recently appointed Dr. Rachel Levine as the Assistant Health Secretary for the United States. And of course, as a part of that appointment uh, procedure, Senator Rand Paul was one of the senators who was asking her some questions. They'll get the opportunity to ask questions. And he asked a couple of, I think, very, very significant questions. Now, he prefaced these questions by pointing out that uh, around the world, genital mutilation is universally condemned by the medical profession. Um, the World Health Organization has you know, stated that genital mutiva- mutilation is almost always carried out on minors and is therefore against the rights of children. I think this is a very good thing that he's pointing out here mm. um, and an important issue that he's raising. Genital mutilation is a horrific thing in our world. He went on to point out that when it comes to genital, mutil- genital uh, mutilation, that it is not typically performed by force, but rather by social convention, social norm, the social pressure to conform, to do what others do and the need to be accepted socially and the fear of being rejected by the community. Mm. Which is a very valid, you know, that's, mm. that's, you know, why it is carried out in those countries where they do practice uh, female genital mutilation, uh, etc. Um, and so basically what he was pointing out that it is, you know, this is something that is socially driven, it is ideologically driven, it is not driven by science. He then went on to point out that 
um, with children who make a decision to transfer from or to transition from one sex to another. So when children, you know, under the age of 18 make that decision, that 95% of the time they regret the decision and they reach a point where they were like, well, I wish I had stayed um, in my biological sex, but unfortunately now it's too late and the rest of my life has been ruined because once you go down that path, you can't exactly go back again. Mm. And so you're dealing with a medical procedure that has a 95% failure rate and a 95% perceived and causes 95% of the time causes damage, mm. permanent damage. So that's a medical procedure. Um, he then asked Dr. Rachel Levine, um, who was Joe Biden's uh, appointment to the Assistant Health Secretary for the United States, um, who is a biological male, uh, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life-changing decision as changing one's sex? She refused to answer the question. Oh. That's a bit scary. Yeah. So he asked again, and he said, do you support the government intervening to override the parents' consent? to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and amputation of breasts and genitalia. Once again, uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, who is a biological male, uh, refused to answer the question and simply said that the answer is complex and nuanced and that she would not be able to answer the question. Huh. Um, now, this is in a situation where you have 40 uh, transitioning clinics across operating across the United States, up to a 1,000 operations taking place in each one each year, um, and they are providing treatment to children as young as four years old. Wow. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, right? If you go down to Bunnings, we don't let children under the age of 18 buy a rattle can of paint. Yep. Okay? Because they are not – they don't have the responsibility to – be good users of, say, a rattle can of paint. We don't let them buy cigarettes. We don't let them buy alcohol. We don't even let kids buy super glue. Yeah. But we let them make a decision to transition from one sex to another. You can sit down with a four-year-old and in ten minutes of conversation, you can convince a four-year-old they are whatever you want them to convince them to be. And they don't understand the concept of the, the consequences that, no. that will come from it. No, they, not at all. They don't have... They, they can't... What do you call it? They can't... Oh, I'm trying to say, like, they can't, you know, like, understand. Yeah, the long-term consequences of exactly what's going to happen here. Yeah. And and what Rand Paul was doing was he was, I think, drawing a very valid um, analogy between genital mutilation and between what we are doing to children as a society, because this is obviously something that has no scientific basis for it. It has nothing in medicine that is showing that this is successful. If you had if you had a medical procedure that had a 95% failure rate in anything other, any other kind of uh, situation, it would be universally condemned. Mm. And this is something that we are doing to children. And when we are doing this to children, I think this is just, you know, there is nothing that makes my blood boil more than abuse that is directed towards children. You know, if, if adults make bad decisions and adults, you know, decide to do whatever adults decide to do, they're adults, you know, we might disagree with it and all the rest, that's fine, but, hey, at least they make that decision as an adult. 
But when we force this on children, because that's what is taking place here, children are unable to consent. This is why uh, we have a thing called statutory rape. Statutory rape is, you know, child abuse because we say, well, a child is unable to consent. Therefore, Mm -hmm. if an adult has sex with a child, that is child abuse. And we send that person to jail. Mm -hmm. But if that, if we take that child to hospital and have their genitalia cut off, amputated, because, well, they think that, you know, there might be, you know, something that they're not, uh, then we call everybody heroes that's involved in that. You know, if somebody has, you know, a disease and, and a, a mental illness where they believe that they, you know, that they shouldn't have a leg, for instance, we provide treatment for that person. We don't amputate their leg. But when they believe that they shouldn't have certain genitalia, rather than providing treatment, we provide surgery and we amputate the genitalia. Mm. This makes no sense at all. We are not providing the care that these children need. And the Bible talks about what happens to uh, people who abuse children. And this is this is a level of child abuse that I find most disturbing. Um and, and and also I find what I found really disturbing was how that after these questions, which which I think were very valid questions, uh, I simply Googled it this morning to, you know, because it's been blowing up the internet and the whole internet across the media universally, Rand Paul is being yeah. demonised yeah. for asking the questions. I, I literally just looked it up while you were talking because it's very interesting. The yeah. news article, the title is... Um, Rand Paul equates gender reassignment surgery to gen, uh, gen, gender mutilation. Like he's the and bad I guy. I think he's made a very valid point because yeah. gender mutilation, he says, you know, is not typically performed by force, but by social convention, social norms, social pressure to conform, to do what others do, and the need to be accepted socially, and fear of being rejected by the community. Well, that's that's entirely right there. That is a summary of why gender reassignment takes place. Mm. What is the difference? Mm. Someone please explain to me what the difference is. And doctors will say, well, we do it because we're trying to make the life better for the person. That's exactly why people do gender mutilation, mm. because they're trying to make the life better for the person. And ideologically, that's what they believe will make it better for the person. We live in an incredibly messed up world. Let's pray that Jesus comes back soon. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is uh, Chris Peterson. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Lyle. Thanks for uh, letting me be here. It's great. Uh, it's fantastic you having the show. Now we've uh, been interviewing uh, recently a few of the, uh, the 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 new pastors around the place, and you're one of the uh, the new pastors. So you have, uh, I guess, just started. Is that right? Yes. So I just graduated from uh, Avondale University College last year. So this is my first placement. Um, yeah, in full time pastoral ministry, looking after churches. So at the moment, I've gone on a bit of an adventure inland, um, and I'm pastoring Coonabarabran and Canamble churches. And, you know, just so far, it's been an incredible experience. Um, all the church members have been so welcoming and inviting to my wife and I, and, yeah, I'm just absolutely loving it so far. That's amazing, uh, Chris. Uh, often we get to interview pastors here on Faith FM, and typically we, you know, we'll have people come on who have, you know, 25, 30, maybe 50 years of ministry experience. Um, how long is your ministry experience so far? 
Oh, well, in terms of just this full-term pastoral experience, I think it's been five weeks now. So. Okay, so this is very I've cool. Got, we get to, years ahead. We get, we get to interview somebody with, and this is really what I wanted to do this morning was to find out what it's like to be doing ministry when you are just, you know, I want to hear a bit of your, your journey of faith and so forth and, and how you ended up in ministry. But maybe before we begin that, um, what have you learned? Maybe what have you learned in the five, first five weeks of ministry? Is there one thing that is sort of standing out so far? I think one of the really surprising things, Lyle, that I've figured out is that the within the church, there's just such support for young people. And I think a lot of that might have to do with how um, throughout church history, young people have really often been at the forefront of evangelism and reaching out to people, uh, you know, with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Um, because, you know, here comes uh, a 22-year-old fresh out of uh, college, you know, he hasn't got any real full-time experience yet. And yet both uh, my churches here in Canamble and Tinnabarra have a bat an eyelid, you know, as to the fact that um, the new pastor is someone very quite young and, to be honest, quite inexperienced. But instead they've just given me their full support um, and they've, you know, they're, they're really happy to to have me, which is just really a humbling experience. Um, when I've interacted with members of the community, um, often people are very surprised that, uh, someone so young is the pastor. But for people in the church, it, it doesn't really bother them because they can see that God uses people of all different ages. God uses the ministers who do have 50 years of experience and praise God for, you know, the incredible ministry that they've done throughout their whole lives and the wisdom that they have. Uh, but yeah, in the church, there's just this incredible support as well for someone who's just starting their ministry. Um, so I've just been really impressed by that and really humbled by um, just how trusting our churches are and how willing they are to support um, our young people entering ministry like this. That's fantastic. That's just a, a huge blessing. And uh, I, I guess another question that comes to my mind is, you know, when you first heard that you had a call to Coonabarabran, Canamble, these are smaller uh, kind of western New South Wales communities, um, and I would imagine there's not as much of an opportunity out there to build a large, you know, social network amongst, you know, other people of the same age. How did you and your wife feel about that when you heard you were heading to, well, to the West? Well, uh, what really does help is when both you and your wife are extreme introverts. So we're, <laughs> we're pretty content with our own company. But also we... Um, before we found out specifically it was going to be Kinnabarabran and Canamble, we had it kind of lightly hinted to us that it would be somewhere um, more rural, more out west. So uh, we immediately started looking at what churches are out west and what, which churches, you know, are, are really specifically engaged in their local communities. And it came down to a few. And I remember my wife, she, she basically said, she goes, Christopher, I really think it's going to be Kinnabarabran. And I said, what gives you that impression? She said, I just, I don't know. I feel like it's going to be Kinnabarabran. Uh, and I think I it might have been a month or two later that we re- received confirmation. But by then, we'd already had about, you know, a month at, l- at the very least to come to, fact that, come to terms with the fact that we'd be going somewhere that was new to us, somewhere that was um, very far away from our family. But, yeah, just having that time to really process ahead of time really helped us. And 
look, you know, uh, there are a few people here of our age, but and while that is nice to, to have that company, it really just has, you know, been incredible how friendly everyone has been here in the church, you know. We don't have to necessarily be the exact same age to have um, a close connection. So we keep in contact with, um, you know, our friends online. Um, but, yeah, we've really just made good friends with the people here at church, in, in spite of the fact that, you know, our ages or stages in life are very different. Well, see, Chris, what you've got there is your uh, your first your first great lesson in ministry, and that is always listen to your wife. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they the have, wisest of the two of us. They, they have a uh, they have a sense about things and are able to you know sort of you know have, they have that female intuition that we sometimes miss and it seems that your wife was right on the money there and heading to uh, Kuna Barabran and Canamble. Tell us a little bit about these towns. What kind of towns are you ministering in? Yeah, so Kuna Barabran and Canamble they're both pretty small towns. They've both got a population of about under four thousand. Kinabarabran, well, really, Kinabarabran is uh, a little bit closer to the Warrumbungles National Park, so it's, a, it's beautiful scenery all around here, and it's actually the astronomy, uh, the astronomy capital of Australia. We've got just observatories littered um, around here, and in fact, one of uh, my church members here at Kinabarabran works at uh, what is the largest observatory in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's right here in Kinabarabran, so that's know, quite a, uh, a big claim to fame for such a small uh, town here. And Canamble's probably just about, maybe about 40 minutes away from the Warren Bungles as well. It doesn't have, it's not quite as close so as to get the, the scenery uh, from around there. But again, just another small, uh, rural, beautiful town. And I, I find that with both of these towns, it's been so easy to get to know people. Everyone has just such community spirit and pride. There's just this coming together that everyone has and you know in, in five weeks I've probably met more people and made more relationships and contacts with people here in these two towns than I have probably you know where I lived and grew up for 20 years it's just so easy and uh, I just really love how easy it is to have conversations with people see how they're going and see how you can help it's just uh, it's an incredible blessing so we've got with the Warren Bungles in your background, in your backyard, and um, astronomy taking place all around, all over the place. The astronomy capital of Australia. Do you have plans of uh, taking up, say, astronomy and hiking as your hobbies while you were there? Oh, the first maybe astronomy, maybe hiking. I think I did enough hiking in my Pathfinder days when we did our expedition camp. So I'm a little. Uh, I think I've got my yards in for hiking, but astronomy, maybe I might do. Nice. So we will we will look forward to uh, you know coming out to Coonabarabran sometime, stopping into the Adventist Church there, and maybe having a stare up at the night sky through a telescope or something or other. Maybe you never know. Oh, you don't even need a telescope. I just walk out of my car at night time. I look up as I walk into my house, and it's all there. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and I think that's one of the amazing things about heading out west, uh, particularly when you've lived on the coast. Particularly if you've lived in somewhere like you know Sydney or Newcastle, one of the yeah, one of the yeah. larger cities. But you've also been dealing with the haze and the humidity and, you know, that we get um, here on the coast that really does, you know, dim the light sky, the night sky a little bit. You head out west, you get that clear, dry air and you stare up into the sky and the suns, are, the, the, the suns and the stars are just absolutely blazing out of the night sky. 
it is uh, it is truly spectacular. Chris, tell us a little bit about your uh, your your, journey, your personal journey of faith. Um, how does how does a twenty two year old end up doing ministry? Yeah, well, look, I think when I look back at my life, I can see that God had been preparing me for this type of ministry my whole life. But in particular, I look at two very formational events uh, in my life that cemented for me this calling, this absolute calling that I had to commit my life to God in this type of ministry. And one, one experience was very positive and the other was very negative. The first experience, um, I was in a class discussion in high school and after the class discussion, one of my peers, he came up to me and he said, Christopher, every single person in this discussion answered the exact same way except for you. He said, why was your answer different? So I said to him, look, well, the Bible has some things to say about that. And he immediately slapped his forehead and he goes, Christopher, you're a smart guy. Don't tell me that you're a Christian. Because to him, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't believe that someone could be intelligent or, you know, at least, you know, have their wits about them and believe in God. He had, uh, his upbringing was very antagonistic towards Christianity. Um, and so he immediately began to just give me all of these questions about God and faith and the Bible, and I did my best to answer them. And by the end of the day, we found out that we actually caught the same bus back home uh, together. We just had never realized before. And so for the next three or four years, um, he'd get on the bus and he'd rail me with more questions and I'd do my best to answer them. And then we'd go to school and he'd continue. And then we'd get off the bus and we'd get back on the bus to get back home and he'd give me more questions. And we just did that for about three or four years, this process of him learning what the Bible had to say about God, learning about who God was and, you know, what the gospel was. Um, and through that experience, you know, you have those moments where you see just the light in people's eyes kind of shine when it clicks for them, when they, they finally understand it, when you can see that the Holy Spirit's illuminated their minds to understand this scriptural truth. And those moments are just invaluable. You know, you can't put a price on how precious those moments are. And doing that for such a long time, I just thought, this is what I want to dedicate my whole life to. I cannot think of anything else I want to do more than this. Um, you know, I have other things that I enjoy doing. I like music. I really enjoy writing. I enjoy doing like digital media. And I pondered, you know, whether I'd want to do any of those full time. But when I reflected on it, I just couldn't see any of those for me personally being ultimately satisfying. You know, God, uh, definitely calls people into full time for writing for him, playing music and worship for him, creating media for him. That's, you know, a, a beautiful thing that God calls people to. And I just looked at me and I thought, is that where God's calling me? And I, when I was, when I reflected, I thought, oh, as much as I enjoy those things, this is what God wants me to do full time pastoral ministry. Yeah, that's um, fantastic. That what an awesome uh, training experience. Yeah, oh, it was a, a an awesome testing ground to just kind of experience that. Um, and then the, the very negative experience I had, um, I had a, a peer in my English class that I sat next to, and she unfortunately um, had a very poor home life, was uh, at times, well, m most likely all the time, was very depressed. Um, and we somehow just stumbled onto the conversation of church. And she said to me, you know what, Chris, I really miss where my family and I, we used to go to an old Baptist church 
and we love singing hymns together. And I said, well, look, if you come to my church, we'd love singing praises to God and worship songs. I said, I'm preaching in about a month. If you tell me which songs you want to hear, I'll write them down. I'll give them to the, the music coordinator and we'll sing all of the songs that you want to hear. And so the week of the sermon came up and she wrote down all the songs for me. And I said, all right, well, I see you on Saturday. She goes, yeah, I'll see you then. And uh, we, you know, that was it. I, I was expecting to, to see her that Saturday. Well, you know, the day rolls up and I get up to preach and I'm looking all across into the congregation to see if I can see her, but she's not there. And, you know, I think to myself, there's a million possible reasons as to why she couldn't turn up. She's sick, she fell asleep, she slept in, um, she forgot, you know, an emergency came up. There's, there's hundreds of reasons as to why she wouldn't be there. So I didn't think too much of it. I preached and, you know, it was an overall good day. It wasn't until the following day that I got a call from one of my friends at school and they said, have you heard what happened to our friend? I said, no, I, I don't know. I was, I didn't see them around yesterday, so but I didn't, I haven't heard any news about them. And my friend informed me that the Friday afternoon she had, um, you know, she had died um, by her own hand. And that was just, a, I mean, it was a, a completely tragic experience, of course, and Particularly for me, I was only uh, perhaps an acquaintance of hers, but she had many very deep and personal friends that this was an absolute tragic loss to, uh, and including her family as well. But for me, it really shook me because I was anticipating that I would have a long time to give the gospel to her like I had with my previous friend. With my previous friend, I'd had four years to share the gospel with him. But with this friend, I had a month and then it was gone. That opportunity had left me. And I never blamed myself. Uh, you know, I never took fault to it. I, I know it's a, an unhealthy thing to do. But it did motivate me further as to my calling to ministry because it made me think we have no idea how much time people have uh, in their lives, whether it's a freak accident, whether it's a tragic event like this, whether it's sickness that comes upon a person. Um, we have an urgency to give people the hope of eternal life in Jesus. And because, you know, because of that urgency, I just thought I, this further confirms to me that this is where God wants me to be, giving the gospel to people before it's too late. Sometimes we have a long time, sometimes we have a short time, and we have to make sure that we maximize uh, on that time, capitalize on it, and ensure that we're giving the gospel. So really those two experiences, one very positive, and one very negative, cemented to me uh, in my kind of high school years that this is what I needed to do to give my life to God in this way. And so as soon as I finished high school, I uh, went to study ministry and theology, and I uh, graduated last year, and yeah, now I'm where I am today, which is where we kind of started off. Chris Peterson, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. Uh, Chris Peterson is the pastor of the Coonabarabran and Coonamble Churches. He's 22 years old. If you get the opportunity to be passing through one of those towns, or if you live in either of those towns, make sure you stop in at the Adventist Church and say hello. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.